Good morning, church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it's always a privilege for us to come together and to worship you, always a privilege to open our Bibles and to consider words written long ago and pertinent to us even this morning. We pray that as we do so yet again today, that your Holy Spirit would once again be kind to us and help us to understand the things that we read here. Many of us have read these words Time and time again, they are very familiar to us. Possibly we have become dull to them. We ask, Father, that you would grant us to be amazed by them. That what we read here, what is represented here, would become the standard for astonishment in our lives. And that we might live lives of awe because of what we read and because of what it's real and because of what it has wrought in our lives. That we here singing today, listening to your word preached, praying that we are those alive from the dead because Christ is alive from the dead. We thank you for these things and and we pray Again, for your help. In the name of the living Christ, Jesus. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, our text is verses 1 through 8, so as you find your place there, let us stand and consider these verses. I'll begin reading in Mark 16, beginning in verse 1, and read through verse 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James And Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. 
And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You may be seated. As human beings, we are wired for awe. We are, we are programmed for astonishment. And that's one reason why we flourish in a relationship with Almighty God. He's the only truly worthy object of godly fear, amazement, and worship. That's why our godless culture is a culture starved for amazement. You can tell that by how freely we throw around the language of awe. Most of us do this. Man, that movie was amazing. Did you see the game the other night? That was an unbelievable comeback. It's like we're trying to fill some kind of awe void. We're wired to desire it, wired to crave amazement, but cut off from God by our sin and ironically working hard to disprove His, even ex- His, His very existence We're left with things like Marvel movies and consumer goods to amaze us. And if that's going to be the object of awe in this life, then no wonder we're left wanting, not to mention lost and dead in sin. Many of us, even believers, we feel that lack of awe in our lives like a weighted blanket. Our, our existence is like a, a groundhog day of perpetual responsibility. And, and I'm not going to suggest that mere boredom is tragic. What is tragic is to live on this side of the event that we've just read about, to live in the shadow of an empty tomb while being utterly unaffected by it. A lack of awe, wonder, Godly fear in the lack of a believer is a synonym, or I'm sorry, a symptom of resurrection forgetfulness. Because the, the resurrection should be the event that calibrates our perspective on amazement. Mark's gospel has been a book of amazement. We see it in virtually every interaction that people have with Jesus. Every time they encounter His work. And finally, here we find it as as people are confronted with His resurrection. Mark has been using this theme to show that Jesus is the Son of God and that everyone who, who recognizes this should repent and follow this Son of God in faith. And with this empty tomb, Mark signals that Because Christ has been raised from the dead, accomplishing everything that He said, the resurrected Christ should be our constant object of awe, amazement, and godly fear. So, as we walk through this text, we're going to consider why this is so amazing and how it should shape us as we we live our lives. Look with me again at verse 1. 
Mark writes in this final pericope, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, obviously, as we enter this chapter, Jesus has been crucified, and these women are mentioned at the end of chapter 15 as witnesses to his death. They had been watching from a distance. Chapter 15 tells us that, that these are women who had been following Jesus and serving him for a while, ever since Galilee. So they should know, perhaps as well as the 11, that everything has happened exactly as Jesus said. He said that he would be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and it happened. He said that his betrayal would take place at the hands of one of his disciples, and it did. He said that all the other disciples would fall away, and they did. He said that the chief priests and scribes would condemn him to death, and they did. He said that Peter would deny him three times before the rooster crowed twice, and he was right. He said that that the Jews would hand him over to the Gentiles. They did. He said the Gentiles would mock him. They did. Spit on him. It happened. Flog him. He was right. Crucify him. It happened. Everything has happened exactly as Jesus said. That's an amazing record. Jesus also said, He predicted three times that after three days, he would rise. And in light of that perfect record as a prophet at this point, one might have expected all of Jesus' followers to have been camped out at that tomb on Sunday morning waiting for him to appear. Everything has happened exactly as he said. None of us believed all that other stuff. But it happened, and he said he would be raised on the third day. He's always right. We're always wrong. We're not missing this one, though. Sunday morning at the tomb, be there. You're going to be there? You know I'm going to be there. We might expect that. Of course, that's not at all what happened. And, and, and the lack of expectation among everyone, we, we might chalk that up to a continued lack of faith. Perhaps that's it. But we're kidding ourselves if we think that we would have been any different. Especially if we had lived in that culture. Because in that culture, these people know death. You know, most of us living in modern day America, we are separated from death. Unlike any other culture in the history of the world. In our modern culture, if a loved one dies, we call in the experts. But in this culture... And not so long ago here in America, if people in your life die, you deal with it. You clean that body. You get it ready for burial. You enjoy a meal together with the body sitting there in the room. And you get a a sense for how real death is, how final death is. Now, of course, these people who have been following Jesus, they know that He has raised at least a couple of people from the dead. But now he's dead. Three days dead. And that's dead. And there are indications in the text that the possibility of a resurrection has not even entered their minds. These three women are going to do what you do for an honored loved one. They are going to anoint his body with strong-smelling aromatic spices. 
that in some measure, the indignity of decomposition might be mitigated. And that indicates a couple of things. They assume that when they get to the tomb, there's going to be Jesus there, and second, that he's going to be dead. Verse 2 indicates that they came when the sun had risen, and that's important because they are able to see. They can see what's going on. And what is it that they see? Verse 3 and following tell us what they see. The, the empty tomb. They see an empty tomb. And that empty tomb, first of all, testifies to a risen Christ. That's the first point in your notes this morning. The empty tomb testifies to a risen Christ. Verse 3. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And that question, this conversation that's going on, they're they're saying this to one another. They're saying this over and over. They're fretting about this. And it just highlights the extent to which these women are taking for granted that there's going to be a closed tomb with a dead body in it when they get there. To say that they're expecting a closed tomb with a dead body in it is almost to say too much. You, you expect things when there's a contingency or a possibility of things being otherwise. Otherwise, you don't expect anything because you're not giving it a thought. To say that they are expecting a dead body is almost like saying, on a typical Sunday, I expect gravity to hold you all in your chairs until the conclusion of the service. You know, I, I, I never make a contingency plan for that. I've never thought about what am I going to do if y'all starts floating up to the ceiling. Never entered my mind. Because my natural embedded unconscious assumption is that gravity is going to hold. So there is no contingency. Likewise, as they are saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us is indicating to us that their natural, embedded, unconscious assumption is that there's going to be a dead Jesus behind a stone in the tomb when they get there. They have not considered that it might be otherwise. There is no contingency plan. They did not ask, what if the stone isn't rolled away? And they certainly didn't ask, what if he's not dead when we, get, when we get there? It never occurred to them. And maybe that's a lack of faith. Perhaps it is. At any rate, it's not on their radar. And so, verse 4, and looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Now, Mark writes verse 4, almost right on top of verse 3. He, he portrays this as if they are talking about the stone when they look up and see it rolled away. And this rolled away stone thing, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen for two reasons. First of all, as Mark notes here for us, it's heavy. And second, just as a public service, you don't leave tombs open. That's because there's a smell associated with dead bodies. You talk to somebody who's a first responder, who's been on the job for a few years, and they will tell you that they can smell a dead body before they see it, even if the person has been dead for less than an hour. And that's because things start to happen to the tissue immediately after death. Circulation stops, obviously, and there's no more oxygen provided to the cells, so you have this carbon dioxide buildup in the cells 
which means an acidic environment in the cells, and those cell walls, they start to rupture. And enzymes that are supposed to stay inside the cells, they're now outside the cells, and those enzymes start to break down the cells, and not just break down the cells, but break down the connections that hold the cells together. That starts happening right away. Remember John 11, when Jesus was going to raise Lazarus, and he ordered that stone to be removed. What was Martha's objection? Remember, this is Lazarus' sister. You'd think she might be excited about this. What was her objection? It's going to stank. That's the Texas Standard Version, by the way. It is going to smell. Because he'd been four days dead. You don't need four days to not want to roll that, that stone away. Needless to say, that the stone was not supposed to be rolled away. That, that also is, is, is this, this doesn't happen. You don't, you don't walk up on a tomb and see the stone rolled away. This is not supposed to happen. Verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Stone rolled away, young man inside. They're alarmed. Why are they alarmed? The other Gospels report who this figure was, an angel. Mark reports what the women saw. In fact, Mark emphasizes the visual aspect of everything. He, he is emphasizing what they witnessed. There are six uses of five different Greek words for seeing in this text. He's emphasizing what they see. They see a young man in the tomb. There's, there's one there's only one way to interpret this then for them. Jesus' body has been taken away. You see, they are not so prepared for a resurrection. It has so not been on their radar that they interpret this whole thing as a grave robbing. And John's Gospel makes this explicit. This is exactly what they think. They've taken His body away and we've got no clue where it is. And that's implied in verse 6. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Don't be alarmed, says the young man. Nothing is wrong. Everything is right. You seek Jesus. You want to see Jesus. This, this is no longer the place to find him. He has risen. See where they laid him. He's not there. And the point is that this empty tomb is not evidence of a robbed grave, but of a defeated one. The one who was crucified, the one who was dead, is alive. Amazing. Astonishing. Awe-inspiring. And not only because of its own reality, but because of what it accomplishes. The empty tomb signifies forgiveness and fellowship. The empty tomb signifies forgiveness and fellowship. And we see that in verse 7, where the young man continues, but go, tell his disciples and Peter 
that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now in verse 6, the young man gives the right interpretation of this empty tomb. Jesus is alive. The the, the grave hasn't been robbed, but he's alive now. Verse 7, he gives the significance. The first component of which is forgiveness. Now the young man closes this, this statement with, just as he told you. Now that reminds us that this rendezvous in Galilee is yet another thing that Jesus said was going to happen. And the context of that prediction is really important to us if we want to understand this rightly. So turn with me back to chapter 14 and verse 26. 14.26, Jesus didn't make that prediction about going before them to Galilee. He didn't make that prediction in a vacuum, but rather it was in the same conversation that he predicted that all the disciples were going to fall away. Now remember that this is just after the Last Supper. Mark 14, 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Indicating, I'm going to go to Galilee, and then you're going to go to Galilee, and we'll be together. Even as Jesus is predicting they're failing Him, He's indicating that that's not going to be the end of the story. And not just the end of the story, it's not going to be the end of our story. Your failing doesn't end us. I'm going to go to to Galilee, and we're going to be together again. It's not going to be the end of our relationship. They are going to sin against Him horribly, but they are going to be forgiven. And so that reminds us that this rendezvous in Galilee is about forgiveness. And also, the young man, he emphasizes Peter specifically. Tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Now that doesn't indicate that Peter is no longer a disciple, but rather just Peter especially. make, Make sure Peter knows this. Now, why would that be? If you're still in chapter 14, look at verse 29. Right after that prediction, they're all going to fall away. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And of course, Jesus was exactly right. But as emphatic as Peter was, that he would not fail Jesus, now Jesus is that emphatic that Peter comes to Galilee. Why? For a browbeating? Certainly not. For restoration. For forgiveness. And... For fellowship. Back in 16.6, the young man says, You seek Jesus. Well, now in verse 7, he's telling them where they will see Him. You seek Jesus, you'll see Him in Galilee. You'll be with this Savior Christ, once dead, now alive. Now, the disciples' failure, the disciples' failure and scattering that was predicted in, in Mark 14, that is like a picture of all humankind since Genesis chapter 3. We have all sinned. 
We've all fallen away and turned aside from God. We've all lost Him. We all deserve eternal punishment. With the disciples, the resurrection reverses their failure and scattering into gathering and restoration. And that's what it does for all who repent and trust in Christ. Did you hear that? That's what it does for all who repent and trust in Christ. Through repentance and faith, in the finished work of the risen Christ, we are gathered and restored. Restored to the only object truly worthy of human awe and worship, our triune Creator God. This is all because Jesus has, to use Mark's terminology, given His life as a ransom for many, Mark 10.45. And all because Jesus has taken our cup of wrath, Mark 14.36. And all because Jesus has borne our estrangement, Mark 15.34. The resurrection of Jesus Christ indicates those, ac- those actions in the death of Christ were accepted on our behalf, and now there is life. Life not only for Christ, but for all who repent and trust in Him. And, and that is amazing. Because what, what we have in chapter 15 is a vicarious death, and now what we have in chapter 16 is a vicarious life. Christ died for us, and now He has been raised for us. Amazing. Which leads to the finale of this Gospel of Mark, which is this. The empty tomb magnifies the wonder of the Gospel. The empty tomb magnifies the wonder of the Gospel. Look at this final verse. And they, the women, they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, commentators are split over how to understand this. Some hold that the women just fail here. That the young man, the angel, he, he told them not to be alarmed and to go and tell the disciples to, to, to go to Galilee, but this final verse shows them afraid and silent. And so the idea is that in keeping with the theme of the failure of the disciples earlier in in the book, the women here have failed. And so you have here at the very end, side by side, the promise of forgiveness and a warning that even post-resurrection, we must keep up our guard against disobedience. Now, conceptually, I don't have a problem with any of those themes or that application of the Scripture, certainly not. I I just don't think it's the best way to understand this conclusion in the context of the whole Gospel of Mark. Astonishment, amazement, awe, fear, trembling, what we see in these women here, the very end, these are the normal responses to the power and glory of Christ throughout Mark. Over and over, as people are confronted with his identity and work, this gospel writer, he exhausts the Greek language to capture 
people's bewilderment and fearful awe. And, and the point that he's making throughout his, his gospel with each scene is that this is indeed the Son of God, as the very first verse reads. And what he wants us to conclude as we apply that truth is that we must, in believing that, we must turn from our sin and trust in this Son of God for our salvation. Now, here are some examples of this kind of astonishment, amazement, trembling language in the book of Mark, beginning at, 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 in chapter 1 and working our way through the end. In chapter 1, verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 127, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. When Jesus healed the paralytic, in, in chapter 2, the text reports in verse 12, and He rose and immediately picked up His bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Chapter 4, verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey Him. Chapter 5, verse 15. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. After Jesus unintentionally, unintentionally healed the hemorrhaging woman in chapter 5, verse 33 records, but the woman knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. In that same chapter, when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, verse 42 reads, And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Chapter 6, verse 2, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him, and how are such mighty works done by his hands? Chapter 7, verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Chapter 9, verse 15, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up to Him and greeted Him. Chapter 10, verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Chapter 11, verse 18, All the crowd was astonished at His teaching. Chapter 15, verse 5, But Jesus made no further answer, and Pilate was amazed at his authoritative teaching, at his power over nature, at his ability to heal all manners of disease, at his overwhelming intimidation of the demonic, at his mere presence, even at his silence what we find over and over is people routinely amazed, astonished, afraid, fearful. Now, how much more would it be the case 
that these women who've, who've walked this, this road with him from Galilee, after seeing him beaten within an inch of his life to the point where he was not even able to carry his own cross, and then bleeding out on that cross shortly after three hours of total darkness on Friday, after knowing him to be dead, seeing him buried in that tomb just three days prior, and now seeing that he lives, how much more would they be, as the text indicates, seized with trembling and astonishment and speechless from godly fear? That they told no one doesn't mean that they never told anyone. I mean, we're reading this, aren't we? And the other gospel witnesses indicate that they did tell others. Mark is simply indicating that for a short time, not as a pattern of life, but in the immediate aftermath, the shock of the ridiculously miraculous has rendered them utterly speechless and afraid, commensurate with every other encounter with the glory of Christ in the gospel of Mark. This is the Son of God. In my view, this is absolutely the appropriate way to end the Gospel of Mark. Trembling astonishment and silent awe. Amazing, astonishing, unbelievable, terrifying, speechless. We, we use those words so often to describe so many experiences when perhaps they should be reserved for a certain kind of phenomenon. You know, you know what's amazing? You know the kind of thing that, that maybe we should reserve that language for? Something that is ruined that becomes unruined. Have you ever seen what happens to cars that no one wants anymore? Cars at the junkyard that have been completely scrapped. All the usable parts have been removed. Cars don't biodegrade, by the way. So they smash them down into pancakes. You've seen this. Smash them down as flat as they can. Imagine your old beater. You once loved it. Now you never give a thought to it. Imagine watching your old scrapped beater crushed into a pancake see it with your own eyes, you watch it crushed, and the next day it's sitting in your driveway, mint condition. You check the VIN, it's the same car, uncrushed, paint unfaded, miles on the engine, undriven, rubber on the tires, unworn. That's amazing. Or your house, burned to the ground. You know, we've got church family here who've experienced that. Watch their house burn to the ground. You go, you go to the foundation the next day, you're going to sift through the ruggage, rummage, I'm sorry, the, the wreckage, and, and you find the house standing again. The ashes and the gases from the atmosphere have reconstituted into wood Paint and carpet and upholstery, beds, pictures, everything precious, unburned. 
and water damage, non-existent, like the day it was built. That's amazing. That's astonishing. Ruined things becoming unruined. That's amazing. Now, I would suggest to you that there is nothing as awe-inspiring, fearful, amazing, astonishing as the ruined body of this crucified man becoming unruined. Life from the dead in the tomb of Jesus Christ because so much has to be undone and, and, and much of it simultaneously. You know those enzymes that I was talking about a moment ago? Enzymes that were breaking down cells and cell con connections and, and breaking down organs, well, now they're all confined within newly reconstituted cell walls and newly integrated organs. And lungs that were coming apart since that last gasp on Friday, now again they're exchanging carbon dioxide for oxygenated air. That, that black coagulated blood, it's now bright blue and red as a formerly dead heart is now pumping it again, first to the lungs and back and, and then to the body and back, bathing these formerly disintegrated cells, bathing them once again with oxygen. Pierced hands and feet inside. Once gaping wounds, now healed but forever scarred. Eyes once closed in death, now open, never to close again in death or sleep. Lips, once blue and bloated, now red, and poised to intercede eternally for His people. Legs, once taut in rigor mortis, now standing to walk out of the tomb. That's amazing. Just as amazing is that His life from death means life from death for everyone who repents and trusts in Him, which should lead you and I with great joy and reverent fear to think of our formerly ruined lives. Formerly ruined lives. Your own ruined life. Do you remember it? The sin that you adored and chased with perverse passion, that sin that killed you and condemned you a million times over. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Hating God and hating others languishing in darkness and just marking time, just marking time until that inevitable judgment day when it would be pronounced that you would reside under the wrath of God for eternity. But on a certain day, and, and you may not know when, and for a reason known only to the heart of God, He spoke life into your miserable spiritual corpse commanding you to live. And, and that heart that hated Him began to love Him. 
and, and your eyes that formerly couldn't see any reason to find him desirable, that they were opened to his beauty. And you repented and believed. That, that record of wrongs that, that would have hung over your head in hell, calling on God eternally to continue crushing you under the weight of his wrath. Where is it now? Where? It's gone, nailed to the cross, and canceled, set aside as paid by the blood of Christ, the now living Christ, whose life from the dead means your life from the dead. That's, that's amazing. That should cause one to fall down before Him in godly, adoring fear and worship. Now, we, we could keep on going. The resurrection of Christ means ongoing power for living. Not, not just life from the dead, but living works from dead works. What we formerly could not do, now we can do. Ephesians 1, 18 and following, and Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 teach that. The immeasurable greatness of the power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in those who believe. Now at work in us. Not just at our, our resurrection from the spiritual dead, but it is now at work in us. And so... Your ruined marriage doesn't have to stay ruined. Though onlookers may have signed the death, death warrant on your union, and even in your own estimation the marriage is, is dead, the immeasurable power of the greatness that, that raised Christ from the dead is available to those who believe. And the empty tomb shouts to you this morning, irreconcilable differences are reconcilable. And unforgiven sins can be forgiven. Decades of bitterness can give way to gracious affection. There is life from the dead. Why? Because Christ has been raised from the dead. And listen, we've seen it happen. And that is amazing. The takeaway here this morning is, is not merely to stop throwing around the language of amazement. But that we look in the right place for it and that we find it there and that we live in light of it. And, and perhaps when we hear the language of amazement used by others, describing relatively exciting events and, and, and maybe truly mundane events as amazing, astonishing, terrifying, perhaps we think in our own hearts that may be grand, but it's no resurrection. Yes, that is, that is wonderful, but it's not life from the dead. We are wired to hunger for awe. The human race is wired to be Amazement junkies, and this, this is where we find it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Life from the dead. What it meant for history, what it means for our eternity, and what it means for our present. And, and we, certainly as believers, ought to walk in reverent awe and astonishment at the crucified Christ, now alive, leading in His wake a kingdom of those formerly dead and now alive.
Now, some may be here with us this morning who you recognize that you've never turned from your sin and trusted in Christ. And to you, I would say this morning that you are in a dire situation, that you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, and you still face eternity under the wrath of God. The good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross and He was raised from the dead. And as I've already said this morning, His death and resurrection provides for the death of sin and the the raising of life for all to repent of their sin and trust in Him. Today is the day that you must turn from your sin and trust in Him. If you have any questions about that, please talk to someone. Talk to someone sitting around you. One of the pastors would be happy to talk to you. Just don't leave here with unanswered questions. You may be one who is a believer. You've been a believer for many years, and yet you are overwhelmed by how you or someone else has brought ruin into your life. And you need help seeing how the resurrection of Christ can bring that ruin to unruin. How do I apply the immeasurable greatness of the power of the resurrection to this situation? How is it even possible that ruin can un, that ruin can become unruin? If that's your situation, I encourage you to get on our website, on the sign-ups page, and sign up for a coffee with a counselor. You're committing only to one coffee with that person where they walk you through. What, what does the resurrection say about this situation in your life? Maybe one of the most helpful cups of coffee you ever drink. We're going to pray. After we pray, we're going to have a moment of silence where we consider what would the Lord have us to do with these things that we've heard. Let's pray. Father, I pray for our hearts. Most of us, Father, can identify with this reality that Sundays we find it quite easy to find a joy in the work of Christ and the resurrection. And yet that joy and wonder, awe, amazement tends to drift away as the week progresses. We pray, Father, that you would do such a work in us that we would be drawn daily to the cross and the empty tomb such that our hearts and minds are captured perpetually by what we find there.
sins paid for, and forgiveness and fellowship given to us forevermore because of a crucified and risen Savior. We pray, Father, that, that you would grant us to, to help one another with these things, perpetually stirring one another up to look at the cross and the empty tomb. That we would find the, the joys of this world that you've given to us and that are good, that we would find them to be second-rate spectacles next to the empty tomb. That when we hear the language of amazement in our culture, in our casual conversations, that our hearts would say, yes, but that's no resurrection. Please grant us to live in awe of what you have done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.